we're in genres, right? We've been talking about the different genres that appear in scripture and how to read them. People ask me all the time, like various people across the country that I, I speak to as clients who will say sometimes like, yeah, I used to be uh, into the Bible. I just, I'm just not anymore. Um, and I don't I don't even understand it. I don't know how to, how to <clears throat> make sense of it. And uh, people who have been, mm-hmm. you know, looking at scripture for many years will say, yeah, parts of it, if I'm honest, I get. Other parts, I do not understand at all. Um, and even within certain books that I enjoy, there are really obscure uh, passages that don't really don't make any sense. So I keep saying to people, the Bible doesn't make sense. <laughs> That's okay. It's okay to say that. It's okay to say that it's a difficult book. Um, we, uh, one of the things I've been saying for a long time is the Bible is not written for us. I mean, it's not written to us, but it's written for us. So, of course, if it's not written to us, it's not going to include things that we would be, our questions are not going to be necessarily found there. Um, But there are these larger questions that all of us have. um, And that tends to be what scripture addresses more so than the particulars of today. Um, So, uh, we are in the gospel genre today. And gospel is a kind of literature that's very unique from the others. Now, as you know, we talked about narrative, and narrative is store or story genre, right? Remember, we talked about that. Story genre um, is legendary. It's um, it's not intended to be taken taken in the same way that we would think of story, <clears throat> where the particulars are all factual and. Um, many of these stories that were told in the Bible were expanded upon. It's not that they were untrue. There was something true that did take place, but they expanded on it. It became um, legendary. And in some cases, um, even some of the orders in which it was the story was told changed over time. Um, because it wasn't about the particulars. It was about the whole. What's the big message that's being communicated? And so the same thing applies to the gospel genre. But gospel genre is different. It mimics very much the Greco-Roman way of talking about a noble or important person who had now passed, and they were reflecting or given a biography of that. So think of gospel as a biography, a historical biography um, with a sort of large message being communicated through that. That's not unlike our history. Much of history that's written today has uh, an intention behind it. It has a message behind it, right? And that's why people say, oh, if you read that person who's got a clear bias trying to say something about our country or trying to say something about other countries. And so you pick up on those biases for sure. Um, but gospel literature is even more biased. I mean, it, there's just no problem with saying, I'm going to take this story, I'm going to put it over here, and this story over here, and I'm going to reverse the order chronologically. Okay, so think of God, don't think of gospel as like historical or, or sequence of historical events. This took place here, then this, then that. That's what a lot of people try to do when they're reading the gospels and they get all mixed up. Because if you read Matthew, you have one version of the birth and you don't even really spend, there's not even much time on the birth of Jesus. And then you have Luke spends a, a lot more time on the birth of Jesus 
And you got John that doesn't spend any time on the birth of Jesus. So, you know, you don't get a, you don't get consistencies in any of these. And then you get some stories about this took, this event took place here, you know, early in the life of Jesus. And then another author will have it at the end of the life of Jesus. So which is it? And people who are looking for that historical sequencing of events or get frustrated by, by, uh, by the gospel literature. But gospel is not intended to be written that way because that's the way it was in those days. So Greco-Roman stories were very similar. They would talk about a nobility of somebody who was born, you know, a noble figure, an important figure who had passed. And then they would tell these stories about this individual. Um, and they were out of sequence. Um, they were not, it wasn't, the focus wasn't on that. The focus was on something else. What I'm trying to communicate to you about this person, it's a larger message. That's why when you look at Mark, it'll be a different, there's sort of a different emphasis. Luke has a different emphasis and John has a completely different emphasis altogether. And, and so when you're looking at these, you're, you, you should expect there's, a, there's something he's trying to say. What is it? Why is he pairing these stories up together? So here's another clue about gospel genre. It is not written like a letter, like the Apostle Paul, who writes and is pretty explicit about what he's trying to communicate. The gospel type of writing, the genre, is not explicit. It's all implicit. So let me give you an example. When you have the birth order, or you have the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 1 and 2, when you look at Luke chapter 1, there's the birth of John the Baptist, right? And Elizabeth is impregnated. She is, you know, incredibly excited. Uh, and, uh, and lots of, th th there's that story as a standalone. And there's a story of Jesus's birth. And then it pairs it up again against Mary and her belief versus Zechariah, the high priest, and his lack of belief. And you and when you're reading it, you just read these sort of standalone stories and you're like, okay, why did he jump from John the Baptist's birth, the Jesus's birth, back to back to a focus on on um, on Zechariah? And that is because the goal was not to try to get uh, it to, to try to be explicit about what he's trying to say. The goal is to say, do you see what is happening here? And there isn't a single message. There's a lot of messages being unfolded in here. The faith of a woman who shouldn't, you know, who is a nobody versus the lack of faith of somebody who is a somebody who's supposed to be in the know as a priest, <laughs> supposed to know God better than anybody else. And he doubts God more so than Mary. All sorts of these incredible insights emerge from just pairing up a story against another story. And that's what Luke does, as well as the other gospel writers. Luke does it uh, a ton. So you'll, you'll see it over and over again. So be, when you're reading it, look at the stories before and the stories after that the story that you're reading. And when you do that, you start to understand, oh, this, that's an interesting connection that he's making. So as we look at today, Luke chapter nine, the transfiguration, and that'll be the focus of today, today's talk, is you have Luke chapter eight that leads into Luke nine. Luke is being deliberate about saying all these things that are happening in Luke chapter 8. And if you read all of the events in Luke 8, they're all, uh, it's all about the unexpected, things that shouldn't be that are. So let me give you an example of that. So look, if you have your Bible, electronic or whatever else version, look at Luke chapter 8. 
and we'll just scan the headings of it. So after the parable of the sower, which is really the setup for the rest of what he's going to say, um, you have Jesus's mothers and brothers that come to him and try to pull him away from what he's doing in ministry. And Jesus says, who are my, who is my mother and brother and sister, but those who do the will of my father in heaven. So he does something that's very, very strange in the ancient world, which is instead of seeing his blood family as that of that being the people that are closest to him, he says, no, it's those who are actually on the journey with me. Something very surprising that jumps out when Jesus is in the storm and the boat is rocking and he's with the disciples, he is asleep in the middle of a storm. That should not be right. So these are the, the strange things that are happening that Luke is playing off of. Uh, Jesus restores a, a demon-possessed man. There's a demon-possessed man who lives in the area of the Gerasenes, and he is uncontrollable, and he terrifies everybody. So that's why he lives out in the desert, and Jesus goes deliberately out to, to him, something you wouldn't do as a religious person in the ancient world because the view was that if you went around these people who hung around dead bones and dead and were very religiously unclean, you would become unclean. Jesus goes to him, heals him, uh, and again, does something very opposite. All, by the way, Luke is trying to say, this is what the kingdom of God looks like on earth. So it's an upside down kingdom. It does not look like anything else, and you should be regularly surprised and thrown off by what the kingdom of heaven does. Meaning nobody, nobody, no matter how much learning you do, no matter how much knowledge you gain, Nobody sits in a high chair in some place of leadership and can sit there and tell everybody else what the kingdom of heaven is, is like. Nobody can. All you can do is engage in the life of discovering that, where you yourself are subjected to its surprises. You yourself are subjected to its throwing you off. You yourself are, 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 are thrown into doubt, thrown into confusion, uh, I say all the time to people who are struggling, if you're struggling, but you're experiencing both peace and distress, joy and sadness, then you are in the game. You're not in the game if you're in one or the other extreme. It's always both. And so, and so this is what Jesus is doing. He is both suffering he is both going to the suffering and there's healing. And then there's these terrible events that take place. This is all part of the, the, the upside down kingdom. And so uh, Luke is describing what that looks like. Finally, in Luke, at the end of Luke 8, um, Jesus uh, goes to raise a dead girl. And as he's going to raise a dead girl, what happens? A woman who has been bleeding for 13 years comes and touches the hem of his garment in the midst of a crowd that is crushing him, touching him constantly. And then Jesus humorously turns around and says, who touched me? And this is the middle of a crowd who are pressing up against him and his disciples are like, is this some kind of joke? And they say, everyone's touching you. What are you talking about? And he says, no, no, there's a difference. Someone touched me with faith. That's different, right? So again, all these upside down things. She touches them. She's unclean because she's been bleeding. Therefore, Jesus should be unclean, but he's not. In turn, she becomes clean. She becomes healed. All these upside down things over and over again. And then he says, 
many who are here, he heals this, he heals this, uh, this daughter. And then he, uh, chapter nine begins. Um, and he continues uh, more of this upside down stuff all the way up until he says in verse 27, truly, I tell you that some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Right. So Luke has already been saying this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And then he says, oh, and many of you are not going to die before you see the kingdom of God. Well, what is it? Is it is it here? Is it on its way? And for Luke, it's it's both. It's both already here. It's happening and it's ever developing. Now, this has been a verse of confusion for a lot of people because it's like, what is he talking about? The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God that they will see it. And then immediately after that, Luke says, uh, describes the transfiguration. So you've got to believe that whatever Luke is doing here, he is saying the kingdom of, of God looks like, or the people that would not die and actually see the kingdom of God come, would see it in some greater measure in the transfiguration. That's what Luke is doing. Um, and so uh, let's talk about the transfiguration and see what this is about. This has been one of those passages I told Danielle, Danielle suggested it as, as one of the things we would, the, the key passage we would look at. And I said, man, I do not like that story. That story just does nothing for me. <laughs> but, um, but I spent some time with it. And, um, and I, I do believe that it has some profound things perhaps uh, to say to us today. Um, so let's take a look at uh, verse 28. About eight days after Jesus had said this, he took Peter. So this is eight days after Jesus had said what? Truly, I tell you that some of you who are standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God. So Luke is skipping eight days of Jesus' life to get to this story and to say uh, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John, and uh, with him up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with them. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And in parentheses, it says he did not know what he was talking about. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so great that there's stuff like that is included in like in scripture right it's like and they didn't know what they were talking about and that's all part of the inspiration that's all part of the way we live this is all part of the word of god it's just it's just the way we are and that's all part of that's all welcomed in the journey there's no rejection to peter there's no like you dummy you know it's just like you will oftentimes be one of those who don't know what you're talking about and You'll discover later. Oh, that's what that was about. Okay. That's the journey. Um, and while he was speaking, <laughs> it's like an interruption. Peter's like, hey, we should do this. And all of a sudden a voice comes out of heaven. And Okay, time to shut up. Um, while he was speaking, uh, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. <clears throat> the voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son who, I'm cho who I've chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. And his, the disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what 
they had seen. Okay, this has some really key, like three or four significant movements to it. The first one is they go up to the mountain. Why a mountain? Those of you uh, via Zoom, talk to me. Put it in the chat. Why a mountain? Why did they go up a mountain? Anybody here would make a suggestion as to why that might be? Get away from the crowd, sir. Absolutely. That was definitely one of the, one of the motivating uh, reasons for that. What else? Yes, absolutely. They thought they'd be closer to God. That is actually an ancient worldview. That the mountains, at the top of the mountains, it was kind of like halfway between heaven and earth. Yeah, I never feel, I never felt that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure it's quite a view. You probably feel, feel amazing. It's like that 30,000 foot view gives you a sense of, you know, a smaller world and a more united world perhaps. But yeah, I, I have, I, I mean, none of us today, we, well, actually I would, I should say that many of us today would say when you get on the mountain, it does feel beautiful. It's inspiring. There's a lot to it. Let's see what folks in the, so yes, that's, that's part of it for sure. There's a lot of, there's a lot here. I mean, for sure. It's not like there's one answer. It's yes, he mimics Moses going up to Mount Sinai to talk to God. Absolutely. And Luke is actually doing that, I think, with some intention. Um, Beth says highest level to heaven. Yep. So same thing again. Privacy. Yep. Um, Carrie says nothing comes easy. That's an interesting take. Sure. You have to climb a mountain. You have to do something. There's some effort to it. Um, but but it's funny that for the ancients, they did believe. It's not funny. It's just that it was normal for them to believe that God was just above the canopy of the sky. It was like a canopy that spread across the world. And that view held for a long time, that that's the way the world was designed. And so that's where God lived, just above the canopy. And so if you were all, in fact, the sacrifices were made on top of mountains because the belief was that the gods had created humans in order to serve them. So they would eat the food that was offered to them by, by uh, the priests. That held for a long time. Um, and thousands of years. And it wasn't, <clears throat> um, and so for Jesus going up to the mountain, uh, it's same thing. It's this going up to the mountain as had always been done, as had always been believed. We don't do that anymore, right? We pray wherever we are. Even Jesus taught that you could. So in some sense, you see how even though people had practices and beliefs about the way you interacted with God and Jesus repeats some of those, there's this profound also experience, experience that begins to move their understanding of God forward. And the experience happens here in verse, um, get back to the scripture here. Um, all right, so like I said, you have the mountain piece and that's, the, that's expected, that's the way you interacted with God. Um, and then this experience takes place in which, you know, it's a spiritual transfiguration experience. And immediately what happens is there's a, uh, there's a uh, you know, Peter and the disciples become awake and they want to have a response to this. Like, oh my goodness, what's happening here? And the words that Jesus hears are about his departure. Now picture this, you have, so this is the experience that moves their understanding of God and us and our spiritual journey, it moves it forward. There's a new revelation that has taken place here. 
So they go up the mountain. That's what you would do to connect with God, to speak to God, to be closer to God. And then this thing happens. What they hear, what Jesus hears is Moses and Elijah are talking to him about his upcoming death. What a wonderful subject, wouldn't it be? You go up to the mountain to talk to God and you have this transfiguration experience. And then the conversation is about his departure. Do those things go together? (laughs) I wouldn't think. I wouldn't think. I would have thought that the transfiguration would have been just this glorious experience in which they have this conversation with God. God's encouraging them. All things are positive. And then he comes back down to face the real world. But instead, he's invited into something, which is that the transfiguration is is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven... Or the kingdom of God is this uh, process. It isn't just a state of being. People think of it as like kingdom of heaven is like heaven or when God returns and establishes heaven on earth. It's, it's a process of becoming. It's a process of transformation. It's transfiguration is transformation. Right? The transfiguration is the transfigure, meaning the figure or the image or the appearance of God has, of Christ has changed or Jesus has changed. But it's the transformational process. And what happens in the transformational process is he has to face his own death. Because, again, the kingdom of heaven is that you lose to win. You have to go through the process of dying to old ways of being in order to become fully alive. Um, And so, and so this is the, uh, and so that's what, that's what all of us have to go through is the process of, okay, death to the ego, death to my, the things I once knew, the forms and structures and whatever was comfortable to me has to pass if something new is to come. And, it, and it's not about like going to look for it. It's about it's already happening to you, but you're probably resisting it. This is the thing. It's not like you have to go find. It's not like you have to find like in what ways do I then go die for Jesus or in what ways do I grow? And what, No, don't worry about that. It's already present in your life. You're probably having a hard time with it. You're probably ignoring it. I find so many of us have, are, are like, oh, man, where is God? I'm trying to find God. And Meanwhile, you have this real difficulty in front of you. And it's like, um, that's God right there. <laughs> that's God's invitation to you. Come and die. And you're like, no, 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 no. Let's do everything else. I want to I work on myself. Yeah, work on yourself because the situation has presented an opportunity for you to transform through it. But much of our temptation, of course, is to resist that. So the transfiguration is, here's what's going to happen. You will be transfigured, Jesus but you're also gonna to have to go through the process of actually dying on a cross for that to fully take place in you. And so that's the way. So let me talk about um, experiences because this is a spiritual experience that blows their minds. Um, and spiritual experiences always do that. And, and we think of spiritual experiences po- usually in a positive light, like a good thing. But spiritual experiences are everything, <laughs> everything in your life. The stuff that you like and the stuff that you don't like, the pleasant and the unpleasant, those are all filled. They're all enchanted 
with the spirit of God. They're all, they're all there as gifts to us. Um, but experiences um, are the thing that expands or starts to change us. And they, uh, and that's what this is about. So let me talk a little bit about expansion and what happens here. The experiences expand. So just before this in Luke chapter eight, there's the story of this man, as I said, who uh, was full of demons in the Gerasenes. Jesus goes to him, heals him. And for the first time in his life, this man is sane. He's whole, he's completely healed. Everybody around in that town sees it. And they watch it happen. And they watch this man sitting down, fully sane, fully healed. What do you think the response of the people was? Cheering? Yep. What else? It says in, in Luke 8, they feared him and begged him to leave. Why? Why would they fear him and beg him to leave? If they see this man who is a terror, who is insane, who is now completely whole. Why? What? We're no different. So parallel it to your life. Why would you do that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there, geez, I'm glad that didn't hit me. Uh, <laughs> Um, so they, they do have to change. Yeah. They see change. They see transformation happening. Every, what they knew suddenly has changed, right? What did they know? They knew a certain thing. Demon possessed people. They had a, what do you do with, with it, with the crazy? You form some kind of understanding around that. You put those people in a group. You put this in a group. You say, okay, these people are crazy. They need this kind of help they must have eaten the wrong foods when they were growing up, or they must have been um, traumatized by their parents or something. Lucky I'm not one of them. And therefore I feel better about whatever it is that we construct in terms of order in our minds. It's a, it's an attempt to create order in our world because it's terrifying when there are things that happen that don't fit the normal order. So by this point, they've got a well-established order to understanding what happens to insane people who are living in your midst. And these people are unclean. You don't go near them. Why? Because there's, again, this concept that disease and sin function similarly. They're catchy. They're unclean. Therefore, you put, you, you, you put them somewhere. You, you get rid of them so you don't catch that disease. And that was the mindset of people. What happens is Jesus doesn't buy that at all. He sees different. He's got new eyes and he goes and he actually touches those people and he heals them. That's why they're messed up. It is harder. This is what we've said before. It is harder to accept healing and wonderful things and glorious things than it is to, to, to just function in your broken, dark world. It's much easier because it's a type of order and our minds crave order. And we're going to choose that over that which shakes us up, even if it's good. There's no difference. These people aren't crazy. They're lost. They're us. We're the same. And so this is why spiritual experiences are necessary. The church hates it, by the way. 
the, 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 the church, I'm talking about the religious institution, hates it because it stretches us beyond where we are and it shakes up the current order of things. There's an ancient Mesopotamia, there's this Babylonian creation uh, myth um, called, and it's written, uh, it's, it's recorded in what's called the Enuma Elish. And inside that uh, story is uh, this goddess that. named Tiamat, who is the goddess of, of chaos, essentially. And then um, her great-grandson, Marduk, uh, he's a god that comes and fights against her and creates order from her body, actually. Rips it apart, creates land and the sky, and now there's order. Do you know who became the god of the ancient Babylonians, the supreme god? Marduk. Why? Because he's the god of order. <laughs> Isn't that convenient? We prefer order over chaos, which is normal. There's nothing abnormal about that. But experience is that which shifts us and moves us into a state of current chaos. I don't know what to do with Jesus. He has just healed this man. He's sitting here. Clearly, the reverse of a lot of things took place. He went to him, was around him, didn't become unclean, healed him. This man is now sane, and he's part of our community. I don't know what to do with that. Now, that's good news on one hand, but it speaks to any kind of experience that begins to shift our, our, our previous way of understanding things. And so that's why uh, the next part, um, Peter, what does Peter do? When he sees it, when he has this experience that just is like, ah, it's just messing with him. What does he do? Let's create shelters. Why? Because that's what they did in those days. They created religious structures around that, which they, if there was a spiritual experience, it's like, let's, let's do that. But it's an old form. Let's create a shelter. Let's create meaning a, a kind of uh, center for worship. Let's, let's create something here and encapsulate, embody that. Let's put a container to this thing. <laughs> Why? Containers are control. It's like, okay, I've got a, I've got a sense of order around this thing. This is too unsettling to us, right? right? The early vineyard movement was, was always teaching. John Wimber always taught about becoming comfortable with spirit and whatever spirit's doing. And for most of us, it was terribly uncomfortable and there was a lot of resistance to that until we became comfortable with what? Being uncomfortable. You got used to it. You just started to expect and you surrendered to experience, right? But then our temptation is to go right back to creating order out of that experience, which is what Peter and the, uh, and the other disciples want to do. Like, yeah, oh, Peter, that's a great idea. Let's create shelters. Let's, let's do that. That's, whew, that just gives me a little bit more sense of control of things here. Because the thing is, if you look at the, for those of you who've been in the vineyard for a long time or have known about the history of the vineyard, it started in absolute chaos, like total there was no control. There was no, who was in charge? We didn't know. It was like, well, there's this guy, Lonnie, who seems to be very influential. Then there's this guy, John, who's also influential. And they're all sort of just doing the, and this goes to my point. It was, it was function, not form. Function, not form. It was what is, what are we doing? Not who are we? Whenever there's a who are we question, which became a question that the vineyard started asking later on, who are we? Can we start defining who we are? That's an indication you are moving away from function. 
It's exactly what the early church did. The early church had no universal doctrine or no universal dogma. None. That is empirically, factually true. There were a bunch of Christians scattered all over Asia. And they all had different ways of going about things. And the Apostle Paul, who had started many of these churches, and after him, many other churches began, and it continued to grow and grow and grow, but it was scattered, and there was no universal structure or system to the, to the, to the thing at all. And then around the time that uh, Constantine comes into power, he recognizes that this is a religious movement that has the capacity to unite a fraying empire, an empire that is falling apart. Because what better that unites people than religion? <laughs> right? So he knows, like, let me, let me show. So what does he do? He gets leaders, bishops from the different areas to come together and create a code, a belief system, dogma, doctrine. And now we are becoming a thing. It's no longer about the, the, the function now. It's about the form. Who are we? And therefore, who are we not? That becomes the clarity, the binary. This is who we are. These are the people who are not us. And so experience is uncomfortable and it is chaotic. And it's not that this is ideal or desirable. It's just that we have to welcome it when it comes because that is what has the capacity to stretch us. I was talking to somebody uh, two days ago who said, you know, when I had a, I remember um, he was sharing his testimony with me. He said, you know, I was, my life was a disaster and I wasn't part of the Christian faith at all. No, no religious, nothing. But I heard a sermon and it impacted me and I decided to pray a prayer and I prayed a prayer and literally instantaneously, I felt like my eyes were opened and I could see differently and something shifted internally and I no longer wanted to do the things I was doing. And peace came into my life. And he said, but you know, I look back, Joel, and it had nothing to do with Christianity or religion or anything else. It had to do with someone that I had encountered, the person of Christ. It was different. But yet what happened is that experience got shrunken into the shelters that we wanted to build for Moses and Elijah and everyone else. There's this uh, neuroscientist I've referred to many times, Andrew Newberg, who's a, um, who's studied spiritual experiences and people's growth. And what he says is that experience must be held with open hands and you have to set it aside. You have to, you have to hold it outside of your current structure because your current structure is going to want to shrink that experience and fit it in there. And you've got to allow it to expand you. And so that's what that's for. It's not about lo loving chaos, like chaos is better than order. It's not. Both are necessary and both are very important to our lives. But when experience comes, our forms and structures have to be able to yield to that experience, have to shift and shape uh, differently. It's the old idea of the wineskins, the old and the new wineskins. Remember that's that, that parable that Jesus gives? And he says, you know, you can't do, you can't put, uh, the new wine into old wineskins. They'll burst. You can't do that. But you also can't ruin uh, the new wineskins. And he actually gives grace and space for both the old wineskins and the new wineskins. It's like, look, you have the old order and the old form. And it's got old wine in it. And that's okay. Don't discard it. But just create a new container for whatever's happening in this moment. And see if you can hold both of those without needing them to resolve immediately. 
And I think that's the point of this is that afterwards, what happens? It, they, the, the, the disciples, it says, were silent about what took place. The other um, gospel writer, uh, I think it's Matthew, who says that Jesus told them, don't tell anyone what you have seen. Either way, the point is still the same. They walk away and they're silent about that. Why? Because sometimes you have to ponder your experience like Mary. Mary is told she's going to have a baby and it's not going to come from the normal way. And what does she do with that experience? She ponders it. She sits with it. She holds space for it. She makes room for this experience in her life without having it to jam into a previous in a previous form, previous wineskin. She creates a new one. So it's like, okay, I don't understand this, but I make space for it. And by doing so, then something begins to gestate in her literally, you know, and figuratively. Something grows inside her. So that's the idea of uh, experience. It's there to shape us, to form us, to change us. And what we do with it is while it is happening to us is to remain silent rather than to try to force it into something that it doesn't belong to. Um, so just ask us to reflect on that and reflect on what is happening in my life right now that doesn't fit my normal way of being, that creates a little bit of chaos in me, that creates a struggle internally. And how can I make space for it? Not try to understand it. How can I make space for it inside me? And let it just be. And sit with it and see what it does to you. This is the idea of submitting ourselves to God submitting ourselves to that experience rather than trying to control everything in our lives. With that, my friends, I'll turn it over to Jim for time of worship. You know what this makes me think of? Uh, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, which is that, you know, going to school and doing a show and tell, right? I've been thinking a lot about show and tell and, and how it comes up in my work and my life because what I want is to understand first and then do second. But discipleship is do first and understand second. God seems to want to work with this show, then tell. You see this in Jesus all the time. It's show. Let me show you what it looks like. And then I'm going to tell you about what was going on there. I need you to be in the experience, be present to the experience that you won't fully understand. It doesn't always make sense. It doesn't look like what you want it to look like. It doesn't have all that clarity. Be in it. And then, then the understanding emerges.